do an amazing job. And they get here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And you guys are sleeping at 8 o'clock in the morning. I know that some of you guys are like, well, some of them show up still asleep. So I'm, I'm going to like trip on this thing. This is like tripwire up here. Reminds me of the war. Here we go. Okay. Um, all right, so good to see you guys. Uh, so we're going to be in Judges once again. And this thing is super wobbly. We'll see if this holds up um, today. So we are in the book of Judges again, and we are continuing with the story of Samson. We're going to spend three weeks. Today is the last week on Samson because he's kind of an important figure. and He's also one that you might know the most about in the book of Judges. And because Samson is the most well-known judge in the book. So if you're kind of new to the Bible or new to TBC, we usually go through books of the Bible, not always, but most of the time. And uh, so it's in the Old Testament. If you don't know where Judges is, look in your table of contents, because every Bible has one of those. Or just find someone next to you and say, hey, where's the book of Judges? And they can show you where it's at. And uh, so we've talked about the, the story of Samson the last two Sundays. And we, what you may not realize is how much time passes from one story to the next. So 20 years goes from like last week's story to today's story, and Samson hasn't learned anything. You would think that he would, but he hasn't learned anything up to this point. So he has shown great physical strength, but immense spiritual weakness, and his actions have not been really to help Israel, but to really only benefit himself. And that's really how he's kind of lived his life. And uh, so after leading Israel for 20 years as a judge, Samson falls prey to temptation. Again, big surprise. So I'm going to summarize for you the first few verses of Judges chapter 16, where basically Samson goes down to Gaza, which is the Philistine capital. The Philistines are Israel's enemies. And then while there, the text tells us that he visits a prostitute while he's there in Gaza. And again, showing he's learned nothing from the past and showing how much he just loves the Philistine culture. He's going to their capital city. Um, he gets with a Philistine prostitute, and, uh, and this is how chapter 16 starts out. Now, the Philistines, they find out that he's there, and they decide, you know, I mean, he, he shows a proclivity towards women, specifically our women, so this might be a way for us to get to Samson and try to take him out. And so um, they plan, the Philistines plan this ambush at the city gates, which, of course, are locked, and it's now midnight, and Samson knows they're after him. And so he decides to try to leave the city. And so he goes to this gate where they're trying to gonna ambush him, hopefully. And because uh, and the gates are locked, you think, well, Samson can't really get out. But the problem is, is it's Samson, and he's super strong. And so he picks up the city gate and, like, just moves it and carries it for 40 miles. And I don't know how big this gate was. But everyone knows that Samson, of course, had these great feats of strength. And he carries his gate 40 miles to some hill. And what you're going to see in, in today's passage is that Samson really hasn't learned much of anything. Um, he's still reckless. He's still impulsive. He's still lustful. He is hanging out in the enemy camp. He's getting with their women. Like, he's just, he's flirting with danger at every turn, as we've seen the last couple of weeks. He has used God's blessings as a reason to forget God. And this is kind of the pattern we see uh, throughout Samson's life. So, so one writer says it this way. 
Outward gains bring inward losses, and outward losses bring inward gains. And this, I think, summarizes kind of how Samson's lived his life, because we've seen him time and time again do these amazing things outwardly, but inside, it's just this constant loss after loss after loss spiritually. And we see this happen in Samson's life over and over again. So I think for us, we tend to do the same thing. When things are going well externally, this is when we are most tempted into sin when things are going well for us externally. I, I feel like I, I keep seeing these, these headline stories the last, really last couple of years of, you know, this famous pastor or this famous church or this famous ministry where the whole thing just collapses based on some moral failure, financial corruption, or whatever the case might be. And I feel like it's just almost happening just continuously. And this serves, on the one hand, I'm tempted to be prideful and say, yeah, look at those people. I always knew they were frauds. But then the other side of me goes, but you know what? I'm just as susceptible as the people that I might be mocking sometimes in those situations. And so we see sometimes that that outward success often brings about inward losses. We begin, to, we begin to gloss over the stuff on the inside because we're propped up by stuff that's happening on the outside. On the other side of that, though, suffering often leads to the greatest spiritual growth. Suffering has this way of stripping down, stripping off the things that we find comfort in, and the definition of suffering is that something that you find comfort in is being taken away from you. And so when God does that in our lives, what happens is that's when we often experience the greatest spiritual growth during those kinds of times in our lives. So look at Judges chapter 16, verse 4, and it says this. After this, so after he was with the prostitute and escaped the city, after this, he loved another woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Everyone knows about Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may, we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now, um, he's already been with a prostitute, and now he's with another Philistine woman once again. Not sure how long this is, how much time has passed between these two events. Uh, but she's asking him, the, or the Philistines are going to her saying, here, can you seduce him and find out where his strength lies? Now, we know where his weakness lies. It's obviously women and notoriety and wealth. But they're asking her, see if you can seduce him and, and get him to confess where he gets this great strength from. Now, um, so there's this new woman in his life, Delilah, and she's also a Philistine. And when it says the word loved here, this is implied, is, is sexual. This does not mean like a, you know, do you like me? Check yes or no. That's not what that means. Um, this is like he actually is engaging with her in this way. And, uh, and so once again, the Philistine leaders, they use his weakness, his lust, to try to go after him. And they want Delilah to seduce him and find out where his strength, his strength comes from. And if she succeeds, there's a lot in this for her because she'll be extremely wealthy and have, be this like national hero if she can bring 
Samson down in this way. Now, most of us think of Samson as this like bodybuilder type of a person, don't we? Um, I have an example here on the screen of someone that um, I actually didn't meet this person, but I saw him at a restaurant one time, a long time ago. Uh, so this guy, he was a Mr. Olympia, eight-time winner. And when I was in Arlington, Texas, at a church there, this guy was a cop in the Arlington PD, and he also looked like this. And I was in a restaurant one time, and I having lunch with a friend, and this guy, I didn't know who he was, he walks in, I'm just like, who is that guy? He's this like really massive police officer. I'm like, I do not want to be pulled over by him ever. And uh, so anyway, he, um, he went on to become like this super like kind of famous guy in that world. And uh, whenever we think of Samson, we think of someone that looked like that, this bodybuilder type of a person. Now, here's the thing. If I was at the gym and saw that guy bench pressing 600 pounds, I'm not asking the question, what is the secret to your strength? Because it's obvious what the secret is. It's his huge muscles. That's the secret. Now, here's the thing. Some people believe that Samson may not have looked like this. In fact, some people believe that Samson may have looked like me and you. And here's what's weird about that. This is why people are asking, what is the secret to your strength? Because he may have looked kind of normal, but God just blessed him with this immense strength, as we'll see throughout the rest of this story. So I'm going to summarize for you Judges chapter 16, uh, verses 7 to 14, where um, the story goes that Samson's not really just going to tell her, you know, where his strength comes from. He's going to kind of, you know, he's going to sort of like uh, not tell her straight up. So he lies to her three times in the story. And first he says, if you go and get strings from a bow, seven of those, and bind me with those strings, I'll be weak like anybody else. And so, of course, what does she do while he, while he is sleeping? Uh, she goes and she ties him up, and then she yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And then he snaps out of his sleep and also snaps the strings. And he's like, where, where, where were the Philistines? And then, um, then he says, okay, I was just kidding. Don't use the bow strings. That was just a, you know, it's, that's, that's a joke. Um, but if you try ropes, if you try ropes, that'll do it. That will bind my strength. So she does the same thing again. And, of course, he snaps those in two. Then he starts kind of talking about the long hair. And he's, like, not telling her the full story, but he's kind of, like, you know, talking about his long hair. He starts dropping hints about his hair. And he says, if you weave my hair into this loom, kind of like a web, and then fasten it with a pin, which sounds like a man bun. I don't understand that. Um, he says, then I'll be weak. He says, then I'll be weak. And so, again, she, she tries this and she fails. And so even, listen, even in his obedience of not telling her, he still sins by lying two or three times. So he's compromising a lot as he engages in this little deal with uh, Delilah. And then skip down to verse 15. And she said to him, and I just, I just hear like the desperation in her voice at this point. You know, how can you say I love you, Samson, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. And you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. 
And he told her all of his heart and said to her, he says, finally, finally, I'll just tell you. And he says, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So what is she doing? This is like the, the classic manipulation move in romance, right? It's, it's if you love me, you will fill in the blank, right? That's what's happening here in the story. And which just word to you guys, if anyone ever says that to you, you should run, all right? If you love me, you will just run. Just, just break up and run as far as you can from that person. So the pattern that you see here is typical of many destructive relationships. The, this couple, Samson and Delilah, they are using one another here. They're saying, they're saying with their mouth, probably, I'm, I'm with you because I love you, I want to be with you. But they really mean I'm, I'm with you because you're useful to me. So he's using her, she's using him, and uh, they're both trying to gain something else from this relationship. And I think we can fall prey to the same kinds of things. We can enter into a relationship, even friendships sometimes, because of what it does for us. Maybe just the idea of a relationship, or we go after a, a certain person because of you know, their status is going to raise our status. And there's all kinds of ways in which we fall into the same sort of trap. So Samson and Delilah, they have this codependent relationship. And they're both using each other to get what they really want. Now, sometimes in relationships, both people can be really chaotic. And you see that here with this couple. But sometimes there can be like, there's the real chaotic person in the relationship, but then the person who seems just calm and stable. And, and so it can kind of have this relationship where this is the, the chaotic person and this is like the, the calm counselor rescuer person. And this person's always trying to rescue that person. And that person's just creating chaos. We don't see that here. They're both kind of like train wrecks in this story. But sometimes you'll see where there's like the, the opposites in a relationship. That will happen too. And it'll appear like the person who's the, the calm rescuer person, like they have it all together, and the other person is just not so much. But what will happen though is you'll still see it's the same dynamic where there's, they both need each other. And there's like this idolatry going on because even the person that is the rescuer feels like they need to be needed. And so they get caught up in a relationship that is often very destructive and very codependent. Some, uh, C.S. Lewis says it like this. So need love, so need love meaning like I need to be needed. I need this so I can feel needed. Need love cries from our poverty or a lack. Whereas gift love, the kind of love that there should be happening in a relationship, longs to serve. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. While gift love longs to give her happiness. You cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. So you see this dynamic. It's sort of a subplot. I mean, this is not the point of Judges. Judges is not meant to be some dating manual for you. But I think it's important for us to, to, to point out things that we see in the story that we can see in our own lives today. Because this is a subplot to the book of Judges, right? But we can still see some points here, that there's a, a codependency happening with this couple here in the story. 
So what C.S. Lewis is getting at here, he's saying if you don't, if you don't find your deepest needs met with God's love, then you're going to find yourself just using people to prove yourself or to gain status or to gain credibility or to gain identity. And they'll do the same for you, towards you. And this is exactly what Samson and Delilah are doing to one another. Look down at verse 18. It says, When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the, the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all of his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, and they, and they gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It is really strange that Samson tells her the secret to his strength, and then he goes to sleep right next to her. I mean, he has to know she's going to, like, shave his head now, right, after the fourth time. And, of course, she does. But he believes that he can just go on like normal. And so what does this show us? That even though he knows that that God has given him strength and this vow, this Nazarite vow to not cut one's hair, there wasn't anything magical in the hair necessarily, but it was he violates this Nazarite vow once again, and God takes away his strength. Because Samson had come to see his strength as something that God owed him. Not, not a gift, but God owed it to him. And up to this point in his life, at least from his perspective, I mean, things have been working out. I've had my issues, but for the most part, I've maintained my strength. I mean, God's not surely going to take away my strength. I mean, he wants to use my strength to bring about a victory for the Israelites, so of course he won't take away my strength. But God takes away his strength. And it says here that God leaves him. Now, that doesn't mean you might think, well, we talked today about you don't lose your salvation. We, we talk about that today. And Hebrews chapter 11 will say that Samson was a man of great faith. And we'll get to how that can, can still be meaningful today. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would, would come upon people for a time. They, the Holy Spirit would not indwell people like, they do, like he does now when you're a believer. But it talks about certain kings and judges. The Holy Spirit would, God would come upon them and then might leave them for a time because of their disobedience and sin. And that's not necessarily a statement about oh, you're a believer, and now you're no longer a believer. It's not what that's about. It's a whole different topic. But we'll see how this continues playing out here. It says the Lord left him, and we don't know why that happened now. Like, why did God choose to do that right now in this moment? Because Samson had committed all kinds of sin up to this point. Maybe this uh, saga with Delilah was just the last straw. Or maybe 
God takes away his strength to finally make him dependent upon God. But it says here that Satan, he is, he is bound and he's blind because they, they gouge out his eyes to punish him. The man who had, had burned the Philistines' grain is now reduced to grinding their grain at this mill inside this prison. You know, blindness in the Bible is often a picture of spiritual blindness. I think we see that here, that, that he, is, he has been spiritually blind his whole life. And now his physical body has just caught up to his soul. And his eyes have been gouged out and he can't see. And that's an example of how he is spiritually. And that he's blind spiritually. And he has been really his whole life. And so um, I'm going to summarize for you verses 23 to 27 where the, the writer tells us that the Philistines, they begin to just celebrate Samson's capture by they sacrifice to their, their fish god, Dagon, and they bring Samson into this party, this celebratory party, as they worship their god, their false god. And they bring Samson into the party, and they're going to mock him as he is bound and chained. So he goes and he stands. He's blind, so he has the person leading him. He says, can you put me b- b- between the two pillars? So he finds these two pillars and puts his hands on these pillars And there's 3,000 Philistines that are looking down from above on this platform, and they're mocking him and jeering at him, and they're worshiping their their false god, Dagon. And they're in this temple dedicated to their god, and it appears in this moment like their god has won. And this is the party. This is a celebration of that. But only for the second time in this story, uh, Samson, the judge, he, he prays. So look at verse 28 where it says, Then Samson called to the Lord, and he said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle middle pillars in which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down, and they took him, and they brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel for 20 years. So in this moment, Samson calls out to God. He says, strengthen me once more. And this might be the first time that Samson exercises true faith right here in the story. He acknowledges that his strength comes from God, not from his hair. And this might be the only moment in his, in his, in his life where he's exhibited true faith, where he calls on God in this prayer. There's a long quote I want to read by uh, a writer who just summarizes, I think, Samson's life. He says, Samson illustrates that people who have, who have power to conquer others, but who cannot conquer themselves. He set the Philistine fields on fire, but could not control the fires of his own lust. He killed a lion, but would not put to death the passions of the flesh. He could easily break the bonds that men put on him, but the shackles of sin gradually grew stronger and stronger on his soul. And instead of leading the nation, he preferred to work independently. 
and as a result, he left no permanent victory behind. He was remembered for what he destroyed, not for what he built up. He lacked discipline and direction, and without these, his strength could accomplish little. He failed to check the impulses that began early in his career, and 20 years later, those impulses killed him. So Samson is like this contradiction. On the one hand, his sin leads to his destruction, but on the other, God uses his death to bring about a great victory. Now, this is the most important moments. This is the most important moment of Samson's life is his death. The most faithful event of his life is his death. This is his most victorious moment, his death. And who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Now, there are some ways, of course, that his death is not like Jesus because his downfall is brought about by his disobedience. And Jesus, of course, died for our disobedience. Secondly, Samson's death achieved just a a limited role that God had for him to, to begin the deliverance for God's people, to begin pulling them away from the entanglement and the ensnarement with the Philistines. And his death began that, that pulling away for, for his people. But Jesus' death, of course, achieved deliverance for us once and for all, a final rescue for us, set us free from the power of sin over our lives, and also the penalty of sin for those that place their faith and trust in Christ. But there are some ways in which his death is like Jesus. Both were betrayed, Samson by Delilah, uh, Jesus, of course, by Judas. Both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both were publicly mocked and jeered at and, and scorned publicly. Both appeared struck down by their enemies, but both through their death also crushed the enemy. So for Samson, it was the Philistines and their false god. But for Jesus, of course, he triumphs over the power of sin, the penalty of sin. He also triumphs over Satan. The Bible talks about that. What seems like a victory for this false god, Dagon, turned into a huge defeat for him. And on the cross, Jesus brings about this victory, this power over Satan and brings Satan to nothing. And Colossians 2.15 talks about this. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is Christ. So at the cross, Jesus disarms Satan, and he he puts them to shame. And he does this by taking away the penalty for sin, eternal separation from from God, but also the power of sin so that no longer, sin can no longer reign over us in the way it did before. So Samson, he dies rejected, beaten, alone, but in his death, he achieves victory just like Jesus. David Jackman, he writes this, the Samson story begins with a strong man who is revealed to be weak, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. So this is the pattern that we see with the Christian life. Same idea. Becoming weak to become strong. We've got to admit our unrighteousness before God in order to have his righteousness bestowed upon us. You you coming to know Christ, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, 
the, the beginning of the Christian faith starts when you say to God, I can't. I cannot save myself. I need you to save me. I don't have the righteousness to offer to you. I don't have the good works. I don't have the good merit to offer you to, to earn my way with God, to gain favor with God. And so your salvation begins when you acknowledge your weakness and your utter dependence upon him for his free grace, for his free mercy given to you through Jesus Christ at the cross. When you acknowledge that in faith and you cry out to him for salvation, that's when you're saved. You can't pay that just lip service and say, yeah, yeah, I know all that. I, I, I agree with all that, but I'm really trying to save myself. You can't just pay it lip service. There has to be this heart attitude in you that recognizes your dependence upon him and your weakness apart from him. And once you come to know him, recognizing the spirit indwells you and lives through you to accomplish his purposes. So even once you're a Christian, we still don't get to pat ourselves on the back and say, look at what I did, look at what I accomplished. There is still a weakness that you've got to maintain as a Christian, acknowledging that he is your strength. And that's when you come to know the strength that only God can provide in our lives. So we're going to have you guys go to um, your breakouts.